Welcome to the Vocational and Common Good Podcast. I'm Philip Lourish, your host. Today, my guest is Grace Nicolette, Vice President of Programming and External Relations at the Center for Effective Philanthropy based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. There, Grace helps philanthropists connect with high-potential social entrepreneurs throughout the world. Before taking this particular position, Grace co-founded the Social Venture Group, a philanthropy advisory firm in Shanghai. As a result, the World Economic Forum named Grace one of its young global leaders in 2011. Here we talk about Grace's community, her growing sense of vocation, and the possibilities of Christian faithfulness in our time. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My God, my God, where I go, glory, where I reap and where I sow, glory, and my hands, they grip the thorns, glory, in the still and in the storm, glory. You are a philanthropist of sorts. You work within the world of philanthropy, or you're at least in the philanthropy group of this project. And I'm wondering, how did that happen? I mean, how did your interest get piqued to enter into this sort of sphere of human work and labor? So I often tell people that I backed into philanthropy instead of aiming for it, which I think actually accurately describes how many people end up working in philanthropy. There are professional programs, but I think many people just find themselves in it along the path. So that would be true for me. If I were to go back and just trace a thread, I studied economics in college and was very involved with Christian fellowship on campus there. And after college, really had wanted to move to China to live and work pretty much long-term for the rest of my life. My parents had moved to China while I was in college and I wanted to be closer to them. And I was also really drawn to the dynamism every time I visited. But I knocked on those doors and other than teaching English, which I happened to be terrible at, <laughs> I couldn't find a job in China. And my sole job offer was actually in investment banking in New York. And so after some counsel with friends and my parents and pastor, I decided to take the job and it was a tremendous experience for me. I was in that role for three years. I worked about five blocks north of the World Trade Towers. So I was there the morning the towers fell and had to run uptown with folks. So those three years were very formative for me in both professionally building up a foundation for, for instance, reading financial statements and knowing more about the world and how the world of business works, but also personally very formative in terms of my church involvement and the way that I viewed the city. It was very easy to feel like one should move out of New York after 9-11, but you know, whether through my pastor Charlie Drew's teaching or Tim Keller's preaching, just really sitting in and recognizing sort of my role in a city, I think that was a very formative time. And all throughout that time, I was also learning lessons on just how to be a worker in the workplace and was knocking on different doors to go to China. And after three years, did finally get two opportunities actually to work in China, both strangely with semiconductor companies, <laughs> um, which is very strange. One of them was actually a Christian semiconductor company, probably one of the biggest examples of business's mission in the world at the time and perhaps still is. And then the other was with just a regular Chinese manufacturing company, but my boss was a Christian. And so I actually ended up taking the latter 
I moved to China. My best friend had gone before me. She was also in the company. And this was sort of my dream. I wanted to move to China and work. And I worked in finance there. I helped this small semiconductor company go IPO in Hong Kong. So as part of this very tight-knit team where pretty much all we did was work, I was able to form really close relationships with my colleagues. And then on the side was involved with the local church there and really fell in love with the people and felt like that was sort of where I belonged. Over time, the, I guess, progression at that point of four years of working ridiculous hours began to weigh on me. And I really wanted to test out this thing that had been in the back of my mind of what would it be like to step into full-time ministry? What would it be like to actually spend more time in general with these people that I love in the local church. And so I'm sort of, you know, grasping at this. And then in the back of my mind at the same time, I knew that my parents would hate this idea. And my parents were also living in China at the time, had been very supportive of my move there. I'm very close to them. This idea of how would I step into something that was a little bit more socially oriented rather than economically or financially oriented. It was really a process that I went through with my dad in particular, who felt at that time that stepping off the career track would be throwing away my education and that social sector or other types of work like Christian work or things where you're helping other people, that's for other people's kids, not for us. But you didn't feel that way. I think that I was intrigued by it. I mean, I think the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Like I think you always kind of want to know what's on that other side when it's not what you're used to. So with his support, eventually it was a series of very intense conversations where it was really a turning point in my relationship with him where I think that's when I finally became an adult where I said to him, you know, this is what I want to do. And he basically over a series of conversations said, like, you have my blessing. And that is like a whole nother story with a journey that I'll touch upon later, but it's just been this fantastic kind of story of God's faithfulness. So anyways, I stepped away from that job, started spending more time with the local church and also volunteering and trying to figure out what my next step was. And over time, what it morphed into, and this was absolutely in the context of a really amazing community I had in China of both Americans and Chinese, we sort of banded together around orphan work, actually, in Mm. China. And there happened to be an organization in the U.S. that was supporting orphans. It's a bunch of moms in the U.S. who had adopted from China and wanted to continue to support the kids who were in orphanages. So a group of us, Chinese and Americans, sort of banded together to do events for them. And we did like art exhibits and fundraisers. And it was in the midst of one of those fundraisers that we were raising funds for five infant orphans to receive heart surgery that sort of the first time that I sort of tapped my personal financial network said, hey, heart surgeries in China are are very affordable, a couple thousand dollars, and these kids can be set for life. Let's do what we can. And I think it was in the span of four to five weeks, we raised about the $10,000 that we needed for the Mm. heart surgeries. We found a local partner. We did this huge event around it. And then what happened is that the local partner actually took the funds and Though the hospital beds were waiting for the kids, they never made it there, and two of the kids died. That was a moment that was utterly devastating in community, but also for me personally, that when money is given to a cause and is misspent or misused, that has real deep consequences that I will never forget. And because we had 
started doing some of this fundraising, people began reaching out to us saying, I want to give to more orphan work in China, or I want to give to rural education. Who should we give to? And, and how can I know who to trust? My community then was the seed of this idea of, you know, we're not experts, but we could be a bridge between those who want to give money into China. We have a local presence. We can go out and find information that you can't just Google online of like, where should I give to? We can pound the pavement to do the due diligence. And this is not magic. Like this is something that you could actually ramp up your learning on and could become expert at. And so that was really the beginning of this nonprofit that I had started with a group of Chinese and American friends. Our vision was to really see China's grassroots nonprofit sector really flourish with more giving that was targeted towards it, which we often hear about the booming economic sector in China. But what's often overlooked is that you have all these social needs that the government rightly wants to address, but is unable to because of just sheer size or, you know, there's just a lot of need in China. And so that was my first foray into philanthropy. Did it feel like your experiences as an investment banker were actually useful for that? Or did it feel like a big transition? I mean, it was definitely a huge transition. I went from nice wood paneled <laughs> uh, <laughs> office in New York to basically working out of cafes and things like that in China. I did really see at that time and still do now that God had used my investment making experience for a number of reasons. One is the technical, like being able to assess whether a nonprofit is solvent or not by looking at the financials. And that was also something I learned during my job at the semiconductor company, but also just a lot of interpersonal things. Like in investment banking, you have big personalities, you have a lot of work to do and how you manage to spend so much time with other people <laughs> and get along and also just bring people to your side when there can be really competitive dynamics. Those are all things that at the time I struggled with so intensely, but my dad actually pointed out to me just how valuable these experiences were. And that was definitely true. So you said the job was to that or uh, do some due diligence on mm -hmm. social entrepreneurship in China. Or, yeah. So what were you looking for? What differentiates someone who really has what it takes in the social sector? What were the signs or marks of a promising investment? So in China, it's very different than here in the U.S. Back then when we started, most nonprofits were these small mom and pop shops where there was usually one founder who saw a need and said to themselves, I cannot live with myself unless I go out and solve this need. And it could be because of their own family background or, you know, addressing a need that they see in their own sort of tribe or clan or family. And just this sheer persistence and a sense of we can do better. That was an extremely sort of encouraging and inspirational thing is to get to know these leaders. And they faced a lot of challenges and they still do. Primarily, the first one is the legal infrastructure there is not put in place for them to register. They want to be out in the open. They want to be transparent. They want to do things the right way. But instead, because they can't register, they're forced to take funds through their personal bank account and sort of stay in the shadows. And so we were seeing programs begin to really scale that still didn't have official recognition as a nonprofit, which some of them eventually were able to receive after years of trying. But so I think that there was sort of this pluck that I saw in them 
you know, for instance, on the issue of working with kids with autism in China, there isn't really a path for kids to go to school if you have a condition like autism. So people would start alternate programs in schools, largely out of necessity, because if they didn't, these kids would not have anywhere to go. And so they had to navigate, still do have to navigate many challenges not least the legal environment, but also people's perceptions of what are you doing? Like, shouldn't the government be helping? And so if you're not operating outside of the government, what does that mean? I'm intrigued by the community in China of Americans and Chinese living together. It sounds like there was a real sort of entrepreneurial spirit to that community. Yes, there was something so special about the community. And when I run into folks who are now back in the States from that time or who are still in China, when I talk to them, we all remark just what a unique time that was and also just how special the bonds and relationship we have are. So many of them are believers. Um, I think we are all so different. And I think about that sometimes where we may or may not have been friends had we met in the U.S., Mm. but we became very close in China because we were united by a sense in which we love the city and we want to be a part of its flourishing. And there are many ways to do that. And so I think there was a lot of rootedness in the theological understanding of the gospel and all its implications in terms of shalom coming to our city that we love so much. There was also really intense investment in each other's lives. So we were together. We did a lot of things together. You know, there was a lot of speaking of truth and love and grace into each other's lives, even you know, in hard times and in good times. So that was a very unique window. I think I have to catch myself to not always compare other communities that I'm now a part of to what I had then because it was unique. I mean, perhaps for the expats, perhaps part of it is that you're away from home and you have other people who have similar interests, so you band together. It was a very, very unique and special community that taught me a lot about what community can be like. Oh, the deeds for God I'm thinking back to my own experience of the early 2000s, the sort Mm of interest in urban life, a certain type of shift within evangelicalism or Mm -hmm. Christianity in America generally, where it felt like all of a sudden there was a emphasis on the value of place, Mm -hmm. a commitment to a community that would be both a church community, but also a church that exists for its neighbors in place and really the need for sort of vows of stability, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a kind of Jeremiah 29 commitment Mm -hmm. to staying in a place and working for its good. When I think back on that, I think about how abstract it was and how much space that emphasis left for us to Mm -hmm. sort of fill in what exactly that would mean. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of glad that they didn't tell us exactly what it would be. How do you feel about that? You know, what I think about is one of the awesome things about us being in China during that moment is that I think we all felt that 
there is a space to experiment and try things and potentially fail, partially from a pure economic perspective, right? So I was in this community, we started an art gallery, we started the nonprofit that I was a part of. There was a sense in which it was much more blue sky, like what would you do if you weren't afraid? You know, here's this picture of Shalom, like imagine what your city would be like in a hundred years and go, you know, and I love that. And I have often wondered why it is so much harder to have that perspective in the U.S. And maybe it's just my own myopia living here. You know, I'm just trying to get by and maybe it's because I'm from here. I don't see my own country this way. But I've often thought that there was just something about the combination of that beautiful theology underpinning our view. Like you say, the sort of space to just say, what does that mean? And then also just being in China where literally, you know, every year, everything is so different there. Like change happens so quickly there. And so we can be a part of that change. Sounds like that venture went really well. What brought you back to the States? By 2010, I had been in China for about seven years and frankly needed a break. (laughs) I was beginning to burn out of being in China. I think running the organization really took its toll. And at that time, I had reconnected with an old friend who had liked me for many years. And actually, I had liked him when I was living in New York. He didn't like me at the time. We had met at church and we began dating. And pretty soon we knew that, you know, this was the right person. And so the question was going to be, where should we be? And it was a lot of discernment. Again, talking to wise people in my community and my parents and discerning, you know, should he move to China or should I move to Boston where he was? And we ultimately decided that I would move back to Boston. And then, so we dated for five months, got engaged. And then six months later, I was in the States. When I moved back to the States, I thought I wanted to work something related to China, but discovered that I wasn't able to find something in Boston. So my second choice was to work straight up in just philanthropy. And I'd been following the Center for Effective Philanthropy, where I work now for years and followed my now boss, who's been the president since the beginning on Twitter. He has a real point of view online and so applied for the job and got it and have been there for six years tomorrow, actually. What do you do there, Grace? So I'm the vice president of programming and external relations. I actually started out in a managerial role on our assessment tools team, so assessing foundation effectiveness, and then over time moved more into the programming and sort of marketing communications external relations and fundraising. You live in a center of innovation. Cambridge is iterating all the time, not necessarily in the sort of institutions themselves, but my sense is that innovation is in the water. Part of it is I think that in the U.S., the ecosystem for things is just so built out, right? Like even in philanthropy, you have like 
the consultant to the philanthropy's consultant consultant. You know what I mean? Like things have been around so much longer. And if you have a good idea, there's almost a sense that chances are someone's already thought of it and is already doing it. Whereas, yeah, I mean, China's obviously civilization is so much longer than ours, but there's something about that time and perhaps even now that it feels a little bit more wild, wild west. Like in philanthropy in China, back then, they're not established organizations really that were doing the things that we were doing. So therefore, let's try something. Whereas, you know, if I were to try to start a philanthropy consulting firm now, I mean, where would I even start? They're a dime a dozen. So you'd have to find something to differentiate yourself and that feels exhausting? Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like how long is the runway you have to figure that out with the costs being what they are? So do you think the church right now, broadly conceived in mm-hmm. America, is paying attention to the right things but just doesn't have the courage to innovate towards those things? Or do you think we're not paying sufficient attention to the things that we should be paying attention to? Boy, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm not qualified enough to diagnose what's going on with the church. I find myself in this place where I'm not sure what's going on right now. It is interesting. I, I sitting at the board dinner that I had with my employer last night. Um, I think many people are feeling that way. Like, what does this moment require of us, whether you're part of the church or not? I'm with the people who are asking the question. I, I don't have the answer. So I, I too think that diagnosis is really difficult. And I think that we're going to have to do it. One of the most profound conversations I've ever been a part of included a sort of elder statesman of evangelicalism standing up and saying the two things that we committed our lives to in the 1980s and 90s are the moral majority and the megachurch. Hmm. And they're both obvious failures. And so the question is, what are we going to do now? Which was a really profound moment for me because it did feel like there was a generational divide that felt kind of similar to that space that someone like Tim Keller would give Mm -hmm. us to say, I'm going to give you Jeremiah 29. I'm going to give you permission and I'm going to authorize you to act in certain directions, but I'm going to provide a whole lot of space for you to play in here. And it strikes me that what we need right now is permission to iterate on expressions of faithfulness, both within ecclesial settings and within our vocational lives. And that if we don't iterate and if we don't find the right language to really describe what we're trying to do and the sort of theological underpinnings of it, we're going to get exhausted. And faithful presence as a concept is intended to be that same sort of authorization, a kind of suggestive enough but also capacious enough that it allows for space for iteration and innovation. Mm -hmm. I mean, the courage to try and fail, recognize when we have failed and need to try again. So a certain type of commitment to a design process, a process of Mm -hmm. innovation and prototyping, evaluating, redoing. My observation is I think that's definitely necessary and certainly what I would want to commit my life to is that sort of openness. It feels fraught, you know, in these times. I think that using plain language to describe one's faith is very different now than it was 10 years ago. I think that the name of evangelical Christianity is really not welcome. It's a byword. It's a pariah in many of the circles that I run in at work and in Boston. And how do you feel the freedom to do that in the Lord, what you described, while navigating all the complexity of assumptions that people make or even self-doubt, frankly? How do you give yourself the space, given that you know kind of what others may be thinking? Those are things that I wrestle with. 
seems like I moved back to the States and it's a whole different conversation about what it means to be a Christian than it was when I left. And that's something, that's a journey that I'm on right now. feels like we are grasping for adequate language to describe a certain sort of a desire to be traditioned people so that we're not just free-floating. In the best sense of that yes, word. Not, that's right. Not the uh, pejorative sense, yes. That's right. And yet reckoning with the failures of our tradition in real time. Yes. And having to account for and explain it in a way that perhaps we weren't asked to before. Like I continue to go back to the, for instance, the proportion of white evangelicals that voted for Trump. And that's a reality that I have to navigate in my job where Christians are viewed a certain way and Trump is viewed a certain way. I think that that does have an impact on the overhead space, (laughs) whether perceived or real. Well, it seems real. I mean, the one that I can't get out of my head is the Pew study from March or April of this year that Mm -hmm. suggests that for white evangelicals, the more they go to church, the more they support the president's agenda at Mm -hmm. that juncture. Yeah. Maybe different now. So it means white evangelicals, and it's important to use both those terms, can't get off the hook by saying that the majority of the president's core support comes from evangelicals who functionally just know they're not Catholic and don't know what else to be. Seems like we're catechizing people into a kind of public identity that affects us all who live under that banner. And you talk about headspace. I mean, I think one dynamic that I've felt, I mean, it's very subtle, but I have felt this is where do I fit in this? And not that it's about me, right? But as a person of color, as a woman, I want to live faithfully in my vocation. I had perhaps at one time aspirations of eventually working for a Christian philanthropy, for instance. But the discourse and sort of the circles that I run in or that the other folks run in, I sort of just wonder, am I too liberal for these folks who would run Christian philanthropies and yet too conservative for folks who are really out there on the front lines pushing for social change, which is, you know, very much what philanthropy is about. And so what does it mean to be a Christian who does not find themselves identifying with either side fully? Like, is there a place for me? It's life-giving to find other people like us, but that's not enough, right? Like, I want to be able to bridge, but I wonder how to do that when things are so polarized. So when you're talking about headspace or runway, with this freedom to do things, that's a big piece of it too, is that we have really sorted ourselves into different buckets. I'm not sure how we unsort ourselves. Yeah, particularly when it seems to me that negative polarization is a sort of driving force in our culture more broadly, so that the way tribal identities work is we know who we are largely by being all united on who we're not. And when the church takes up that posture by being defined by what it's against rather than what it's really for, then it does make it difficult for people to exist in liminal spaces that have a hard time identifying themselves in the we. So that makes total sense to me. And I'm really sorry about that. It feels like that's the world we woke up in this morning and I'm not Mm -hmm. sure where it's going to go. Yeah. Can you tie that question of effectiveness back to that initial experience in China? 
you know, it wasn't just that experience, but also a series of experiences I had while running the nonprofit where we advised donors on where to give that I saw. For instance, I experienced the very real experience of being on one side of a power dynamic of like very wealthy and opinionated funders and being sort of this outpost in a developing country. So that was one. But certainly, I think one thread from that very first experience fundraising for the orphans through my work today is that it really matters how funds are spent, that regardless of if one is a Christian or not, the stewardship of what we've been given is a really weighty responsibility, and people need help doing that well. And is the help there technical? Is it data? Is it other forms of support? I mean, what is the help there? It depends. So (laughs) um, it depends on what we're talking about, right? So when we're talking about funders trying to solve very big social problems, problems that have defied easy solutions, or problems that are even results of market failure, I think it's worth talking about all the things that caused it and, and then how do you start to unravel and undo some of those negative effects. And so I think that quantification and data and measurement can be really useful tools in beginning to answer some of those questions. They're not the ultimate tools, but they are vital in that process. It seems to me that there's a newfound interest in philanthropy from for-profit entities, Silicon Valley, Tech Titans, Mm -hmm. applying largely the skills that they developed or the attributes that are good for creating apps Mm -hmm. or other sorts of ventures applying those same forms of logic to questions of social progress. Yeah. Does that feel like a good thing to you? There's also been this sort of dialogue that's been going on about the distinction between philanthropy and charity. Is Christian charity somehow impervious to questions of effectiveness and measurement? Should we not know what our two different hands are doing in terms of giving? Or is it the case that we, the church, should be paying more attention to the ways in which oftentimes organizations outside of the church are really doing a great job of addressing things that we would all agree are important to address? How do you make sense of that? So if I were to break that down, I think maybe I'd answer the second part first, which is what I think of as the faithfulness versus fruitfulness conversations. And I didn't make that term up. That's that's out there. In fact, I think one very helpful resource I just read was by Paul Penley from Excellence in Giving, which is a Christian philanthropy consulting firm. You know, he really takes to task this movement within Christian philanthropy and with ministries that it's somehow unbiblical or unfaithful to measure results. And I would agree with him. I mean, if you look at the Bible, there are many places where a numerical headcounts of people who are following God and changes to those headcounts are reported. And I think that faithfulness, one might think is really, you know, you just pray and you kind of let go and let God. I think that faithfulness is actually the hard work of certainly you pray. That's a major piece of it, but really trying to steward and understand how you can do the best with what you have been given. I think that's really what God has called us to with this. And I will say that there is a real way in which we will ultimately never know, right, the results of our good works or our giving, but that it doesn't have to be an either or. There can be like a thoughtful, holistic way of learning and evaluation that is also very grounded in faith and in placing in God's hands what the results are.
what do you suggest people read on the question of effectiveness? Yeah, I mean, this is where I think there is space for exploration. I think talking to people who work in this space, there are many tensions that we inhabit here. Faithfulness versus fruitfulness is one. Relationships versus quantification would be another big one. Are we solving technical problems or are we solving more like adaptive kind of social problems that defy easy solutions? I think that talking to people and really getting educated and listening well would be what I would recommend in the absence of like, here's this book that will tell you everything you need to know. I'm thinking now of a similarity between what the philanthropy group determined Mm -hmm. and some of what the medicine group determined, Hmm. where ironically enough, medicine struggles to know what to do when it doesn't have a technical solution. Mm -hmm. And in a very real sense, Hmm. doctors know that all care is finally palliative care. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how can we be as Hmm. effective as possible while also recognizing that the problem we're trying to solve is not really a solvable problem? And so how do Christians bear with people and do their best work while bumping up against the limits of their craft. Yes. And it strikes me that philanthropy is somewhat similar. Yeah, and that gets me to the first part of your question, which is I think there can be an implicit assumption that is made that sort of business thinking approaches to doing philanthropy or nonprofit work are sort of one-for-one transferable. And this is a huge drum that Phil Buchanan at CEP, he's my boss, he beats, which is in business, you want your strategy to be yours alone. You don't want your competitors to know about it. In philanthropy, for instance, if your strategy is yours alone, you're not going to be successful. I mean, you have to share it around. In business, profit is a really great way to summarize your effectiveness In philanthropy, there isn't that one number that tells you your return on investment. The complexity of some of the problems, he would say, and I think I would agree, that it actually calls for a much more nuanced and skillful view of quantification than in the business world. So it's dangerous to kind of assume that we're somehow saved by business thinking. You know, in society, we often think if you've been successful at one thing, you must be really good at others. And philanthropy is often, you know, if you talk to these philanthropists, they'll tell you it's been way harder for them to give away the money effectively than it has been for them to make it. Grace, you're the best. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Vocation in the Common Good is a production of New City Commons and the Narrativo Group. This episode was produced by Mike Cosper and Philip Lorish. It was edited by TJ Hester and it was mixed by Mark Owens. Rain it pours in.